Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, huge structures collapsing, have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world. And no one will keep that light from shining. Today our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature. And we responded with the best of America. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat. But they have failed. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. Welcome to the Church Safety and Security Broadcast with the Church Safety Guys, sponsored by Checker, background screens for your faith or volunteer organization. The Church Safety Guys is a nonprofit organization. Our mission is to inspire, influence, and impact church safety and security teams. We are protectors, guardians, ambassadors, and shepherds. We are about all things church safety and security, which starts with a ministry mindset and a servant's heart. 
Join us for the next hour as the Church Safety Guys unpack safety, security, leadership, and ministry operations with your hosts, James McGarvey, Paul Buckner, and Mike Scully. This broadcast is also available on social media, YouTube, your favorite podcast platform, and security broadcast by the Church Safety Guys. I am James, and I'm joined by uh, my co-host this evening, Paul. Yes, we are. We're Michaelis tonight. <laughs> we are. Michael is somewhere in the. Uh, I want to. I was going to say the Midwest, but I think actually it's more like West. <laughs> I think he's somewhere up in Montana. I don't even know if like he has cell service or whatnot. But he and his family are on vacation, so um, I I told him I would try and keep Paul in line, and and we should have a. <laughs> We should have a (laughs) good night. So if you just joined us, thanks for joining us. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Um, If this is the first time you've ever watched our broadcast, uh, welcome. Uh, Feel free to visit churchsafetyguys.com for more information and resources on helping churches and and, uh, things that we can can help you with and are available. if you're watching this at a later time on YouTube, feel free to click mm-hmm. the like and subscribe button in the lower right hand corner. And then that way you'll be updated when we have new content coming out or uh, when we do a new broadcast. So usually we do a broadcast every Sunday night, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, we take your questions as we can. Uh, it is a live unscripted to an extent <laughs> uh, broadcast. So, yeah, but um but today, you know, today is September 12th, and uh, we always try and remember uh, remember first responders and military, and certainly Patriots Day is is the best, one of the best days to do that. I mean, we should be doing that every day, but um, from from that standpoint, you know, we've, we've posted uh, different things in the groups uh, the last few days, just kind of um, highlighting that, and of course, we always... You know, we always want to say thank you to those that responded and those that uh, perhaps paid the ultimate price. Um, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to uh, Somerset, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, where Flight 93 went down. And uh, I will tell you, it was a life-changing experience. I've, I've actually uh, been now to every one of the three sites. And... Um, you know, I, I walked in. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I walked into the memorial, and uh, I was kind of um, I was leading one of my kids. My family was there, and and we all kind of split up and did our thing. And I was leading one of one of my kids over, and I noticed that they went to um, a section that they had set up, and they actually had recordings of the. Um, uh, the 911 calls from the folks on the plane to the 911 dispatchers um, and the families. And they, they had said, you know, the families released this with permission um, and gave permission, you know, to use it for the memorial. But um, one of my, uh, one of my kids picked up the phone to listen. And so I came kind of came up next to him and I picked up the phone and listened and, and uh, got to hear the conversation, the last conversation that, um, some of the folks on flight 93 had, you know, with, with the, the 911 dispatchers and saying, um, you know, tell my family, I love them. Tell my family that, you know, 
to, to hang in there and, and encouragement and faith. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I just, even, even thinking about it, I kind of tear up a little bit because I, I just, all of a sudden I was hit with an overwhelming, um, wave of just, I cannot imagine being, and I mean, we all know it's, you know, f- big things that happen in history. We remember where we were, we remember what we were doing. And, and I certainly remember where I was when it happened. Um, but just to go back and this, even though this was several years later and listen to, um, you know, this conversation, which the family will hear, but it's the last conversation this person is going to have. And I just, um, you know, I really, I started tearing up and, um, you know, I think my, my daughter asked me, she's like, dad, are you okay? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not really because, um, you know, there's always, I think with, especially with flight 93, there's always a lot of conspiracy and different things about where it was going and what it was doing. But, um, and there's also a lot of discussion about how, uh, now, you know, we're 20 years later that, um, you know, it's quite possible that the military would have removed the plane um, if they hadn't crashed it or tried to take, you know, if the folks hadn't tried to take it over because of where the plane was headed um, to stop it. But regardless of what happened, we know from the recordings and everything that the people on the plane stood up and they, you know, they were not trained people. They were not trained um first responders or anything, but they did what they knew they needed to and, and made that ultimate sacrifice. And one of the other things that really, really touched me at that memorial is, um, you know, we hear all the numbers of how many people went down on the plane. Well, at the memorial, there's actually an extra stone there. And I was counting the stones and I'm like, what is this stone? Like, that's an odd number. So I walked over to it and I looked at it and it was actually, uh, for one of the passengers, unborn child. Mm. And so one of the passengers that went down <clears throat> expecting. And so I appreciated the, um, the fact that they recognized that. And they said, yeah. you know, here's a memorial where we're respecting, you know, this unborn child, because that was part, you know, that was part of the sacrifice. So um, we definitely, we always try and pay respects and, and um, we, we enjoy doing that, um, even though it never seems to be enough. So I always, I like to bring that up and mention that, but how is your, uh, Paul, how's your week going now that I've, <laughs> I've well, I've definitely, definitely that was passionate and I haven't heard that story. That was, that had a lot of beauty to it. So, uh, good weekend, got to do some, some chaplain work and work with a young couple that I care very deeply about. Um, I was going to circle back really quickly you develop armor about this topic because, because it was so, it was so in our face for so many years, understandably. And I remember my son was about 11 and uh, it came on TV and I was just flipping channels back when I still did conventional TV. And he's like, dad, dad, can I watch this? And I said, "Uh, it's going to have some graphic stuff. I mean, I don't know if you're ready for that. And he goes, mom won't let me watch it. And I don't really understand what 9-11 is. So we watched the whole thing. And I it was very emotional for me because I not only relived the memories, um, you know, of course, I know where I was and, and the things that happened after that day. Sure. But watching my son experience it and actually seeing a young man's anger at an attack on his nation and the loss of life and his questions, that was intense. 
And uh, it was just one of those things that it was it was very surreal to watch him experience it for the first time, because you do with, with certain things, you develop armor. And uh, um, it's always an emotional thing for me when I go back through and, and hear the stories and what have you. And, and interestingly, <clears throat> I won't belabor the point, but those men and women that that did stand up and sacrifice their lives, we're headed into a time in this nation where that may happen again. And uh, I had a, a gentleman telling me some things today um, about some of some threat level things that are concerned when it comes to domestic terrorism. And I, when I say that, I mean, t I mean, terrorism domestically, sure. things that could happen in this nation. And I think we all need to love our families, leave nothing unsaid, be right with God and be prepared, be armed, be trained to be ready because you never know when it may be your house of worship. And I, and I sure. don't mean to belabor that point. And it, and you never know when it may be you walking into that Walmart, that that's the place that evil people decide to attack. And without getting political, we now have a nation that has produced a lot of terrorists that has the ability to do things they've never had before. So it's a time to watch and pray. A lot of prophecies being fulfilled. And so um, the, the price of, of freedom is eternal vigilance. And that, that can be, we can throw that around as a cliche, but it's not one. Right. So on that, on that cheery note. <laughs> well, and it's interesting too, you say that because that what resonates with me is I had, and, and I kind of shared a little bit with you and some other folks, but uh, Friday night I was out actually all of, all of Friday, I was out uh, at Cedarville university in um, Springfield, Ohio and uh, there was an event, event that I was asked to step in and, and oversee this executive protection and security of, and it was uh, for an actor and a, and a, a music artist, a Christian music artist. And what was interesting to me was, and we had, we had a blast. I mean, we had some fun, fun times, fun stuff. Um, you know, I, I was there literally there about five minutes and someone came running, <laughs> screaming into my conference room saying, I need help. I need help. There's a student that's passed out. So literally I had just walked in with my trauma bag from my, from my truck and I grabbed it and I'm running back out and we, and I'm like, did you call campus police? Did you, you know, cause we had a, a, a medic on standby. I'm like, did you get them rolling? And they're like, uh, <laughs> so I'm literally like the security guy had given me his card, like the captain. And I'm like, looking at the card with the bag, with my phone, trying to dial the number running out the front door. And so I get to him and I get out the front door and I'm like, it was a long jog. Like I was in the back of the, the auditorium. And so I get to the front and they're like, Oh, it's okay. She was taking a nap. <laughs> and I'm like, Okay. Is she did? Nobody checked. So I not sure. At that point, I had the, and I didn't know the a captain very well, but he's a, he's an officer in Ohio, and and I I got him on the phone. And I'm like, I need you to respond, and then I'm trying to figure out where I am because I literally just got there. I'm like, I'm on the north side of this, you know, of this auditorium, this door, and he's like, okay, we got folks rolling, and I'm like, oh, wait a second, false alarm. So then later he like walks over to the conference room and he just like, you know, tips his head and kind of looks at me and I'm like, what do you want me to do? She came running in saying somebody was passed out. Next time I'll just sit here. I'm like, thanks a lot, bud. Next time I'm just going to sit here and just say call campus security because I don't know how to do anything. 
so from that point forward, he was actually like, he was on, on point and it was hilarious because we became best friends at that point. I actually, I invited him to the captain, to the, the conference uh, nice. in October nice. and, um, He's I've come to find out, you know, he does a lot with church safety, too. So I'm trying to get him to come on the broadcast. And he nice. used to be a pastor and, and a faculty member over there uh, at the college. But yeah, so from that that to we graduated to someone stalking one of our artists that was singing and she showed up because she felt like God told her to divorce her husband. Yeah, God told her to divorce her husband and marry this artist. I'm not making this stuff up. I can't make this no, stuff up. No, so literally, I had the music production guy of this artist come up to me, and he's like, um, and and members of the band, they're like, hey, she's here. Hey, she's here. And I'm like, as long as she doesn't come on the stage, you know, she paid for a ticket. I don't, you know, she's over there. I'm here. We're good. Um, but you know, instantly, I had I had security move, you know, officers moving all over. I, I think I had about 15 officers that were like reporting to me and I'm like, okay, you go stand by the bus. I don't want her leaving the building, backtracking all this stuff. So a little bit later she left and uh, she, as she was leaving, she drove by the tour bus and she started screaming, um, leaning out the window, screaming, mind you, um, you're out of the will of God. God hates you and all this stuff. And I'm just like, I, you know, you can, you can't make this stuff up, but I just, yeah, I, I honestly, and you know what? The artists came to us, everybody came to us after, and they were like, you know what? You died. You guys did a fantastic job. Thank you so much. It was, it was great. The, but my, my point in getting to that, you said, you, you said a few minutes ago, you were like, what, you know, what is your plan? Like live every day type mentality. And what I thought was awesome was both, the actor that was there that spoke a Christian comedian and the music artist, both of them said that message. And both of them were like, look, you can't plan for tomorrow. So you do today, you know, you serve the Lord, you do the best that you can today with mm -hmm. what you have and you treat it like that's, that's it. You got one day left and make that choice because none mm -hmm. of us know. And the message there was none of us know, you know, what tomorrow is going to bring or, or what, and, and I felt it was comforting. Like I, I was blessed by listening to their, their ministry and what they were saying, because, you know, they, uh, I needed to hear that. And it, it ties to what you're saying, like with the uncertainty of different things, like politics and everything else. Going on. So anyhow, I want to bring our guest in because he's probably like, I'm going to dump these guys and I'm not coming to your conference at all. But um, our, our guest tonight is <clears throat> Hannah and he is actually with safe Harbor training. So welcome Aaron. Thanks for joining us tonight. I appreciate it. Uh, not a problem. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so let's go ahead. Uh, Paul and I kind of already heard it, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to repeat it. But let's go ahead and uh, how did you get into safety training? Tell our tell our folks just a little bit about um, your unique there. I said it again, your unique background <laughs> and how you're doing what you're doing. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I'm probably not going to say it exactly the same way because I never tell the same story twice. <laughs> there uh, <you> go. <laughs> uh, but the, I honestly never wanted to get into it. Be involved to, to be honest with you um 
my whole thing was I grew up in a medical field home type deal. My mom was a nurse. She was in CCU, ICU. Uh, so I, I got the whole brunt of it. Right. So I knew how to, to handle the first aid situations. Um, you know, when I was 16, it really kicked in. I thought one of my friends was, was going to pass away. And, hmm. uh, you know, some of that stuff just kicked in for me. And so I was lucky to have it. Um, but I never wanted to do anything on the medical side of stuff. I always wanted to be like a police officer or a firefighter, even though it was, I had this weird relationship with fire where I loved being out outdoors with a, a <laughs> campfire and I, I loved, uh, um, being around fire, but the thought of being in fire kind of like scared me a little bit. Uh, sure. so I had this weird relationship with it, you know, I mean, most people probably don't want to be inside fire, I guess. Um, but it wasn't until I was in college for something completely different, right? Um, I actually, my first experience in college was when I was 16. I was doing uh, computer engineering. That wasn't my thing. I left and started doing something a little bit later, a couple years later. And um, it was interactive media. So in today's time, it would be something like graphic design, web design, those types of things. And it was during that time that, um, you know, I, I was still on the fence about what direction my life was going because, you know, what 20 year old really has an idea of where their life is going at that point. Yeah. Um, and even some 40 year olds and 50 year olds. And, you know, I mean, we're all kind of just like, hey, what's, we're here for the ride. Right. Paul's um, like, here. <laughs> Uh, and and so it was a random chance where I overheard a couple of people talking about this tactical trauma care. And I'm like, mm -hmm. well, you know what? That sounds interesting. I already know some medical stuff. You know, my mom taught me a lot of stuff when it came to um, the, the cardiac and uh, the heart. She would even come in sometimes uh, and, and dissect pig hearts and like open them up and show the class. And like, I still have some of the letters that she got from the students from like, fifth grade where, you know, we still really couldn't write. And I'm trying to guess what they're trying to say. Um, some of those were my letters. Uh, and, and so, you know, it was one of those things where I said, Hey, I got some time on my hands. I got nothing better to do. I want to go take this course. I took it, fell in love. And from there, it was just one of those, uh, scenarios where I kind of, um, I kind of couldn't stop. I got addicted to it, really. Nice. And I kept on taking the courses over and over and over again. And the instructors were like, hey, you know what? Uh, when I'm not here, why don't you help me out? Uh, and I started off as like helping with the courses. And then it just it blossomed from there where I was, I was helping them teach the courses. And then I would teach the courses when they were away. And so those guys, some of the guys were like ex-military. And, and they would actually contract on the side. So when they were gone... That was that was my end to teach the classes for him, um, and I look back at that and I, I probably uh, agreed to a, a lot less payment than I probably should have. Um, so you know, I, I didn't really feel satisfied in, in that regard later on in life. I'm like, man, I, I really got I got thrown under the bus on that one. Um, but I started working with them and I got a lot of contacts, and then I started uh, security consulting, um, and and it just kind of went from there. Uh, you know, and I had been in public safety. It's probably going on, you know, about 20 years now. Uh, not to give my age away, there's still a few years before I hit 40. So um, <laughs> it'll be it'll be it'll be almost 20 years when I hit 40. I'm not there yet, so it's going on 20. But uh, you know, that was where it really blossomed for me. And then I kind of just haven't really been able to get out of it. It's always been something that I'm passionate about. I love teaching people about it. Um, you know, and 
and uh, one of the big things that really stuck out to me was uh, how many people don't know what to do in an emergency. Um, you know, I've been through at least a dozen different tropical storms and hurricanes when I lived in Florida. Um, and one of those was, was Katrina. And, um, you know, it, it's just it's heartbreaking, to be honest with you. And seeing that and then and then uh, wanting to be able to help and knowing you really can't help unless people get educated. That's where it really started for me, uh, just on the educational side of things. So uh, after a long period of time getting into, you know, corporate security and, and safety, occupational security and safety, um, and then some of the adventures that I did overseas, it was one of those things where I said, you know what, let me just, I'll create a company. I'll do a few classes every year. We'll, we'll get some people with some knowledge and um, we'll get some of that misinformation out there. Uh, hopefully we'll, it'll get died down a little bit, um, you know, and, and uh, that's where, that's where really where it is for me right now. Cool. Well, I, for those, for those of you listening, I met Aaron, I don't know how many years ago uh, it was before. Yeah. <laughs> It was before, actually, it was before you guys got married uh, yes. because you came and you took a CCW class for me. And now I'm like, I'm feeling totally embarrassed because it was probably like the most basic class you've ever had in your life. And Well, do you remember what you told me? I don't, honestly. Oh, okay. So, uh, <laughs> we, <it> comes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the thing about it was, is my wife started feeling ill at the, the, the informational section of it. Okay. So that was where you said, Hey, you know, if she's not feeling good, you know, we'll, we'll set something else up. So we did. And, um, I remember one of the first things I said to you when we met up was like, Hey, I don't know if you have anything else. Cause I literally don't own anything smaller than a 40 right now. So <laughs> okay. I hopefully you have something smaller that she might be able to shoot. And, um, you know, I got up there on the target and I started, I started shooting at the target and you looked at me and you were like, you were not a guy that I would want to meet in the back alley. And, and cause, you know, it was just one of those things. And then, so we started laughing about it and my wife wanted to shoot some. And so uh, I think she started your, your Glock 380, which by the way, she hates Glock now because of that 380. Um, okay. you know, because <laughs> twice there is a failure to feed and it was probably her shooting it more than anything. That was her first I, handgun she's ever shot. I've gotten rid of 380. I don't. I, I I'm pretty much. I'm I'm pretty much a 40 guy. Paulo, Paulo will tell you. <laughs> yeah, one of these days he'll move over to God's round, the nine millimeter. But you know, we pray for his salvation. There's only so much I can do. So right. I mean, you got to continually. You know, sometimes sometimes you sow the seeds. Sometimes you, you harvest. You do. It. Some of us sow. Some of us reap. I know that uh, John Riley works in the background hey, to to you know, reap. So I'm I'm gradually. I'm still with Glock, but I'm gradually. You know, converting converting over and throwing some Ruger in the mix, you know, <laughs> well, and, and, you know, it was, it was funny though, because my wife got up there and she shot the 380 first. And then one of the, the big ones that I had was a, a full, full size 45. And it was like a, a 98, uh, 1998 Ruger KP90. Like it was okay. over for 10 millimeter, but yeah. And so she, she like wanted to shoot this. And so I said, okay. And I looked at her and I said, you dropped that in the mud. And you're cleaning the whole thing. Like I will show you how to strip it and clean it. The first round smacked it right in the bullseye. And and here James looks at me and goes, "Are you sure you want her to know where all the guns are?" I'm like, I don't know now. Like I don't know. So that was, that was how we originally met. Oh, well, you know, honestly, I I do remember that. I don't remember that she got sick. 
but I do, I do remember you guys and, and you were pretty awesome, but I can't, honestly, I, I don't even know how many classes I've done over the years. So, <laughs> um, but it's funny that you remember that. Cause I can totally see myself saying, I would not want to meet you. And I'm back. <laughs> but I can also tell you that I only usually say that to people that could probably either outshoot me or be expert marksmen. <laughs> so, um, but no, that's cool. I, you know, it's funny because I know like over the, over time we've kind of messaged each other here and there, but, um, you know, you've, you've been pretty active with our, our social media groups. And then, um, I know that you've had a lot of, a lot of experience, like with wilderness rescue and, you know, first aid and stuff like that. So when we started talking about putting, the classes together, a lot of that information um, I've taught before, you know, I, I regularly do just a lot of basic first aid safety training, but I'm like, you know what, people are going to get tired of, of hearing <laughs> me talk at a conference. So I'm like, who can I reach out to that is entertaining and, and would be able to join us? And, and actually I was talking with Mike and Mike is like, uh, I don't know. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to, I think I got the guy. So for those of you, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about misconceptions and, and let, uh, let Aaron jump in there with some stuff. But um, for those of you listening at a later time, he is actually, he's going to be one of our conference speakers. So if you happen to come out October 2nd and you can get more information on, um, on our website, just click the 2021 conference link or uh, you can visit churchsecurityessentials.info and uh, you can see his information there as well. Um, but you, as far as training, you, you go anywhere, right? You'll go as long as, as long as someone's actually paying you, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes you can, you can pay me in peanuts. Uh, it really, it really just depends. Uh, you know, there, there are those times where I just need to get out of the house and, and you, you tell me there's a good meal involved and, and maybe pay the gas. I'll be there. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that's what I appreciate. You, you jumped in on the conference cause you were like, Hey, I see what you guys are doing and I appreciate mm -hmm. your, your ministry and what you're, what you're doing. So I, I appreciate you partnering with us for that. And we're definitely, definitely looking forward to it for sure. But um, we'll go ahead and take a quick break. And then when we come back, uh, we'll jump into some more stuff. So, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with you. With over 50 years of experience with religious and nonprofit organizations, Thomas Alexander Insurance and Associates understands that your congregation is different from a traditional business. We're here to fulfill your needs, coming to you while creating a personal plan for your budget and size. From your local community to around the globe, we are advocates for you. Thomas Alexander Insurance and Associates, your partner in service. Nobody thinks it will happen to them, but with over 2,000 emergency phone calls per month to our independent program attorney answered hotline, it's closer to home than you think. At U.S. Law Shield, we give you exclusive access to our 24-7, 365 emergency hotline, not a call center, direct access to our network of independent program attorneys. With a price point of only $10.95 per month and unlimited attorney hours for criminal and civil defense, 
U.S. Law Shield provides you with unparalleled service and protection where it matters most. No other program comes close. We believe an educated member is an empowered member. We do this by providing educational resources featuring seasoned attorneys, firearms instructors, law enforcement, and experts in all areas of self-defense law. We at U.S. Law Shield believe peace of mind should come with simple and affordable protection. Church Safety Guys help church and place of worship safety and security teams all over North America through our broadcasts, online communities, conferences, trainings, resources, and the all-new Church Security app. Download it today. Help us continue to reach churches by supporting our sponsors purchasing our resources, and consider becoming a ministry partner by making a monthly or one-time donation. Remember to like, subscribe, and share this broadcast with your team. And now, back to the broadcast. All right, so we're back. Welcome welcome back if you're joining us at another time. Uh, feel free to click like and subscribe in that lower right-hand corner. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, People, people continually ask me why I do this, and it's really because in the background, Paul makes me giggle. That's why I do this. It has nothing to do with trying to help people or help churches or anything. It's like, you, you all can't see this. One of these days, what I will do, though, I promise you, is I will take my phone and I will record so that you can see what he's doing in the background. And There might be dancing. <laughs> would be a gold nugget and it will be well worth, <laughs> well worth it so Hello. anyhow so we're we're back we're talking with uh with aaron and uh aaron's going to join us at the uh church security essentials conference uh october 2nd which by the way is actually we have about two weeks left we're we're going to seal up uh, ticket purchases on September 27th uh, for our our facility count and everything. Um, <clears throat> so you have about two weeks to get your ticket. You don't want to miss it. Uh, it's the first conference that we've ever put together. Um, all the church safety guys will be there. Aaron will be there. Uh, John, 
uh, Leo Riley will be there with general response and, uh, and we're just going to have a great day. It's, there's no two ways around it. I mean, I think the more I think about it, the more I think it's going to be a lot of fun just to, you know, just to hang out and fellowship and, um, and hopefully, you know, we can, we can provide resources and information that, that makes it worth, worth your while to take a break and, and come join us. So, um, we do have churches that have sponsored tickets. So if it's, if you're a smaller church, I always say, like to say it, but if you're a smaller church and you can't, for some reason, uh, put together the, the money for the ticket, please reach out to, to us. Um, you can do that through the website or on Facebook and, um, you know, we'll, we'll do the best we can to get you in. Cause at this point with the, the lineup of speakers we have, I just, I just want to get people in because it's, it's going to be a great day. I'm not going to pay you, Paul. I'm not going to give you money to be there, but. <laughs> so I, I'm really interested because I understand that the church has several Kenwood speakers and I know that those produce great sounds. So I'm going there for those speakers. <laughs> So, so on that note, I'm in oh, quite the mood goodness. tonight. I'm in quite the mood tonight. But Aaron, I was really intrigued when you said myths, or or I think you said misconceptions. And I've developed a I've developed a question over the years. You know, what what would you tell me? Uh, you know, what questions don't I even know to ask? And and so I'd love to throw that back and say, hey, what are some myths and misconceptions, and what are things people should know that they don't even know to ask? Yeah, that's all very good. Um, you know, I know that for like the conference, I'm going to talk about uh, medical response and some of that's going to be assessment. And so even just starting there, right, there, there's a lot of misconceptions about what a, a medical assessment is. A lot of people believe that the medical assessment starts the moment you touch a patient or a, an injured individual, but it starts well before that. That It starts even before there's a, a medical intervention that's needed. Right. It's it's getting into the right mindset. It's understanding things like the demographic of the location. You know, when we talk about um, religious institutions, uh, you have demographics of different places. I know churches that their demographics, every, everybody is above 50. Right. Mm -hmm. So what are going to be the common, um, the more common, I should say, medical emergencies that you may face there compared to, say, a church of, of all 30 year olds? Right. Mm -hmm. And so getting that that medical assessment is going to be key before you even start, because then um, you have a profile of the more common things and that you can start practicing a little bit better. Right. Nice. So if you know, um, say that your entire church is made up of 65 plus and you take a look at the data of, hey, what's the, the leading cause of medical emergencies for people 65 and plus? Oh, let's just say it's cardiovascular events. That's something that I can train on assessing better than, say, you know, somebody that needs a Band-Aid, right? Uh, because what's the easiest way to take care of someone who needs a Band-Aid? Give them a Band-Aid, right? Uh, so that medical assessment is now over. Uh, but when you get into the lengthy ones, that's a whole different thing. Uh, I mean, if you want to start talking about it, you could talk about uh, just trauma care, right? Um, I'm sure you guys have heard of something called high and tight when it comes to tourniquet use. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a misconception as to why that is, right? If you look at the committee for TCCC, uh, they usually don't talk a whole lot about high and tight when it comes to a trauma situation. They talk about, you know, identifying the wound and placing the tourniquet 
two inches above wherever the wound is, as long as it's not over some sort of joint, such as your elbow or your knee. Well, high and tight came from the military, where especially in mass casualty events, where you know what, if you can't remember, hey, let's open up, or maybe you don't have time, maybe you have bullets whizzing at your head, and you can't take a pair of trauma shears, open them up, and find out where that that wound is. The best thing to do at that point, throw it high and tight and move on to the the next person, right? But people don't understand that misconception that, oh, I have to do it that way because if I don't do it that way, it's wrong. Well, technically it's not. Um, and then there's this misconception about tourniquets on your forearm because there are two bones in your forearm compared to your, your bicep and your upper arm. And so some people will sit there and tell you that put it in tourniquet on your forearm um, won't give you occlusion or stop the bleed, basically. I've heard um, that. And, and that's not 100% accurate, right? So there's actually studies that show that if you use both the bones and, and that can help compress it and provide occlusion rather than not. Um, so some people will go to this high and tight because they just simply don't want to, uh, or they've heard that misconception that the, the two-bone theory is going to prevent the occlusion. Um, hmm. you know, so, and then improvised tourniquets is another one, right? I know we're talking about trauma here, but, uh, improvised tourniquets is another one where people are like, well, you know, improvised tourniquets, you got two schools that I see a lot. You have the school where they say they are, they are the absolute, uh, best way to handle, uh, a bleeding victim. Right. And then you have the other ones that say they're absolutely hundred percent useless. And there's a middle road behind, in, in that scenario where, if I'm going to trust my life, I would prefer it to be a, to a commercial tourniquet, right? Um, now, if I didn't have a commercial tourniquet or another scenario, you're in a mass casualty or a motor vehicle incident and there's more people that are injured, and let's say you only have one tourniquet because I don't know very many people that carry five, six, ten of them, right? Um, and then if I do know those t types of people, they're either – uh, I look at them strange because they have no occupational need for that many or they do and I say, okay, I get it. Um, but uh, in that scenario, you may have a, a, a tourniquet, a commercial tourniquet, and you apply it to one person. What about the next person that's bleed out and you don't have one, right? Well, mm -hmm. in a scenario where you're within a, a good distance of emergency response getting to you within you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, an improvised tourniquet may be your best bet, right? That's the only option that you have at that point where they bleed out. And so the improvised tourniquet then becomes uh, something that you're just hoping will prolong their life until additional resources arrive on scene. Now, do I believe that you should go into the back country and not have a commercial tourniquet? Absolutely not. Um, there was a story about this kid in Michigan. I believe it was Michigan or Montana or an M state um, where he was found in the back country and he was deceased. Well, he had, um, lacerated his his femoral artery which whether he would survive or not who knows but he used his belt as an improvised tourniquet right and the problem with improvised tourniquets isn't that they're not effective it's that they're not effective in the long term they come loose they don't keep occlusion the way that you need them to they come off when you're moving a patient and that becomes problematic so um understanding why you're learning the things that you are and not just blindly believing somebody because they say, you know, Hey, I have this course, come take it. Um, and this is, this is what I'm going to tell you to do. And then, you know, agree with it a hundred percent. Um, you know, you can agree with it and then go and find out, you know, Hey, that high and tight thing. Yeah, it, it works. 
but here's why we do it. And here's ways to, to utilize a better method if I have the scenario to do that. Right. So giving yourself options or tools in your tool belt uh, to be able to handle a medical emergency a little bit more effectively um, in my book is is better than a, a one way approach that might not necessarily work 100 percent of the time. I think it's I think it's interesting you say that because <clears throat> I've been you know, I've been in EMS for for a long time. And um, what's interesting to me is that there was a period in, in time, even in EMS back in probably back in the 90s, where we were told a tourniquet was horrible, yeah. like don't use a tourniquet. Don't I don't know if you remember mass trousers. But we were told, don't use mass trousers, don't use anything at all like that, that the military is using, the military is their own thing, don't worry <laughs> about it. And I can remember, I went, one of the one of the ambulance calls that I went on uh, in New England, and I've, I've talked about this before, actually I brought it up last week, a guy, um, a guy was, was making fireworks, or said he was, <laughs> and uh, he ended up crunching some black powder in a coffee can and the the coffee can imploded and exploded right so it it blew into his his stomach area and then blew out all the windows of, of his uh of his cabin his house and so when the first fire when the first uh first engines rolled up on the scene this is literally in the middle of nowhere when the first engines rolled up they thought nobody was in the house they were just mm -hmm. like hey this house is on fire let's put it out you know, let's, let's move forward. And so you already have a delayed response, right? Because they're like, nobody's here. So they get the hoses out. Well, as they're hooking up to their tanker truck, this guy, the homeowner comes walking out of the front door of his house on fire. And so the chief's like, you know, hose him down, let's wrap him up. So they get him wrapped up in this blanket and then they ask for an ambulance. So we're literally like a normal drive would have been 40 minutes to get an ambulance to where he, you know, where he was. So I was on that ambulance and that night was a freak night because we actually had two, two paramedics, both from Vietnam, both had served in Vietnam on that truck. That truck was the most qualified ambulance in new England that night. And, and, you know, it ended up helping the guy. So we get there. And they're just, and, and that alone broke so many protocols that the guys were like, this sounds bad. We got that feeling. We're just going to ignore it. So they get there, we get there. We're like, you know, and, and the boss of the ambulance company always told me, he's like, you see that orange box, you know? And I'm like, yeah, what is it? And he's like, those are the mass trousers. You don't touch those unless it hits the fan. Don't ever touch them. I don't want to see them in your head. Right. Cause I was a newer EMT basic at the time. And, uh, so we get there and these medics are like, Hey, get that orange box. And I'm like, Oh no, this is really bad. So they put the trousers on, they ended up air, air flighting, life flighting the guy. Um, the helicopter landed in his front yard and, uh, which was another protocol breach because we were supposed to go through medical command to get the helicopter. We were, we didn't have radio signal. So we called them directly on one of the police radios and said, we need the helicopter. So long story short, we saved the guy's life. He right. literally, I mean, we're in the middle of nowhere. He was picked up by the helicopter. He was taken to Dartmouth Medical Center in New England. Um, and it, he was there in less than 20 minutes, right? Wow. And he had, 
Um, I think he, he ended up losing two fingers, but he's still, he was still alive. So after the fact, we ended up having to deal with all of the protocol breaches that, you know, <laughs> so that wasn't a real great conversation. Um, you know, with those reports. yeah, <laughs> filling out those reports <laughs> and medical command. And, um, at one point the owner of the ambulance company, uh, took, pulled us all. He's like, I want, and you got to realize too, this guy was probably in his, in his late sixties, early seventies, right. you know? And he's like, he was a, a former Vermont state trooper and he's like, I want everybody in my office now. And so we're all like, if he's like, if you were on that call, I want you in my office. So we're like walking in and he, he looks at me and actually my dad was on, on the call too. He looks at both of us and he's like, not you get out. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So I'm like walking out, like doing this, like we both are. And we left the building, the ambulance building and you hear him with the two paramedics talking. And, uh, and so talking. later he, he like stormed out. He's like, I'm, and I said, can I get you anything? He's like, no, I'm going home. So he gets in his car and he leaves and I walk out to, to the bay where these guys were. And I said, you know, are you guys okay? And they're like, um, yeah, we'll survive. You know, it was just like, it's another day in EMS. Right. But what I've always thought was funny and, and what I've taught a lot of times in the classes is, is you improvise, right? You use what you have, where you have it. Maybe it's not the best, but I always chuckle because it seems like we're always behind several sometimes years what the military is doing and it's like the military will say hey this really works you guys should do it and then like two years later the medical practice is like oh hey this really worked we should do this thank you for the studies yeah <laughs> well you know i want to make two quick comments i apologize and i want to make two quick comments and then i want to throw it back to you so it's the the last 20 years of the war on terror we have actually launched ourselves forward under normal circumstances, 50 or 60 years easily in our understanding of emergency medical and trauma, because people are coming back and surviving things. We have quadruple amputees that would never have survived before. And, and a lot of these guys and gals are up and walking around. I mean, we, we've come forward to the point of science fiction from 1990 until now, you know, post battle of uh, Meg um, uh, Mogadishu, uh, we, everything has changed. And so I love all these changes, but one of the things that's really that really I want to stress to people is if you learned something, make sure you go back and learn again, because even if that improvised tourniquet isn't an improvised tourniquet really, and it's acting as a pressure bandage, that's a whole lot better than bleeding to death. And uh, if you've ever seen our, our broadcast where we talked to Frank Pomeroy about Sutherland Springs, that's what the nurse Julie did. A lot of what she created was pressure bandages. And yeah. so she held people together. Um, I, I believe just like what you said, I don't hardly go anywhere without a tourniquet on my body. But then if I have to, I'll start cutting stuff up to improvise around it. So anyway, can you can you dispel some other myths? I'm, I'm down. Well, so before I jump into that, first of all, James, what person didn't build their own fireworks when they were younger? I mean, come on now. Uh, okay, well, I'm just going to – yes, you are Show of fingers. However, Who made their own? I will, I will actually say what made this situation unique was this happened right after the first uh, Twin Towers bombing. No so coincidence. I'm, no, no, not at all. So, you know, here we are up in New England in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden there's an explosion, right? 
So, I mean, it, 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 this goes without saying you guys, you guys know it, but for our listeners sake, it brought every police officer from like a 30 mile radius to that location just to see, okay, what is this guy really doing? And there was no, it, it took a long time to convince them to say, look, um, okay, we don't know. Maybe he was making fireworks, but <laughs> whatever he was doing, it was kind of dumb because you don't sit there doing this with black, you know, right. black powder. That's <laughs> how you really yeah. pack it in there though, James. You really got to, you really got to pack it <laughs> yeah. in there for the best in result. A, in a steel metal folders can. Yeah. Let me do that. Yeah. Well, and, and all of this leads back to another misconception that you're not supposed to use a tourniquet. There's, yeah. there's literally, uh, it was, Oh, even up to like three years ago, there was a gentleman, he was an older gentleman who, uh, you know, he came in on a class for mine and um, one of the guys was talking to us and he's like, hey, you know, this is an industrial company. We have big machines. You know, uh, you're just doing a basic first aid. We're not talking about tourniquets. What happens if someone cuts their hand off? And 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 literally the guy looked at him and said, we'll never use a tourniquet. And I'm like, that's like the only option that you have at this point, right? Either turn or last or rights. You know, I mean, if you got enough heat, maybe maybe you could do something. But like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, and that's- and it was because he was still thinking back of when, like, what James was talking about was where there was this period where, hey, tourniquets are bad, but they've become a more advanced. And even um, uh, for myself. Before I was even allowed to to use a commercial tourniquet, I had to use a triangular bandage and learn right. how to make a, a solid improvised tourniquet that yep. could last 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. Once you could do that, then nice. you could move on to uh, the that's, commercial tourniquets. When I started, that's what we did. That's why you yeah. carried around like 16 different triangle bandages. Know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and um, that's the other part of it too is – um, now it's more widely acceptable to, to deal with the, the, the improvised tourniquets. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if they still do it or not, but even up to like 2018, 2019, uh, Boston EMS, they were still using uh, surgical tubing, which is considered a legit tourniquet if you know how to do it as their main tourniquet. So on all their, on all their rigs and all their runs, they were, if there was a need for one, they would oh. use surgical tubing. Um, and that's where you get some of these knockoff, uh, I shouldn't say knockoff, but I call them improvised tourniquets that uh, look like an elastic band because they're yeah. trying to simulate the surgical tubing. Ah, because what it is, is uh, you know, that, you're that supposed to get an inch too. and a half, you know, like an inch <clears throat> and a half or two inches uh, width. And so yeah. what they'll do, the surgical tubing, if you wrap it around and you can get that inch and a half, two inch width, and so some of these improvised ones, uh, mm-hmm. I call them improvised because they don't have a locking mechanism. So there's a chance that they could potentially slip off. Um, you know, uh, so that's what they're they're marketing them as is you know commercial grade surgical tubing, right? That's so, interesting so, because yeah. I I'd never heard honestly I had never heard that, and I kept wondering why they were showing up like in the real cheap trauma kits and stuff like. Mm-hmm. And I'm like looking at it because I went through mine at my church and I'm like pulling them, pulling them all out. I replaced them all and I put in, you know, the, the commercial like military grade tourniquet, but I'm like, what in the world? And I'm like, this is, yeah, throw this away. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a cheap way to get away from it. Right. Uh, You don't have to have those commercial grade tourniquets, 
But that's also a, a misconception, people believing that they don't need something like that in a, a kit. They'll, they'll go out there, they'll buy a first aid kit, and then you know they think, hey, I'm covered, 100% yeah. covered. And they're not. Uh, you know, that it, there's a false sense of hope there that they have everything that they need. Because uh, if you have everything that you need, then maybe you have, need a blood pressure cuff and a pulse ox and a stethoscope. Yeah. And I mean, because you really don't have everything. You have enough to handle the small stuff. Um, but you know, that's not always, that's not always what uh, trauma is. And another, uh, misconception is, you know, the bad things like, oh, I won't need a, a tourniquet because it's not that big of a deal or even, um, just medical supplies because it's not that big of a deal. But trauma is the number one cause of death in people ages one to 44. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's the third leading, leading cause of death of everybody overall. So Trauma can be a lot of different things, um, but in there is that massive bleeding or hemorrhaging um, and, and the internal stuff that goes on. So uh, we, we need to make sure that we're stocked. We need to make sure that we're prepared. We need to make sure we're doing drills um, because part of that equipment misconception would be um, the fact that, hey, I have an AED. I'm good, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, where did you place that <clears throat> AED? And I ask people this a lot, like, where is that AED located? And a lot of times it's located where someone on a safety or security team can very easily get to it, right? But what if they now have to run five minutes to the other side of the facility? Right. right? Did Absolutely. You, you, and, 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 and you'll get that, too. Like, I'll ask them, like, how long will it take you to grab that AED and go to the farthest point of this facility? Yep. And, and they say, oh, well, two minutes. Let's find out. And 10 minutes later, they're like, I can't even get there because I'm breathing so heavy. Right. And so it's one of those things that's, where, I mean, that's exactly it enough. Yeah. That's exactly what we did in our church. Cause our church is about 150,000 square feet, like attached, like in an L shape. And when they put the first AED in, I'm like, okay, you put the first AED there, but now you just added an 80,000 square foot building to the end. So if I'm in our security office and I have to go, you know, I have to run to to across the building to get that AED and then come back. <laughs> First of all, I'm going to be dead. You I'm might be, be the dead because I'll be out of breath. <laughs> Second, that's just a waste of yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like it would take me probably eight to ten minutes to do that if I was really hustling. Right. So yeah, we added, we actually added a second one towards the newer section of buildings. So yeah. now it does, it takes us like we can get to any AED within two minutes of any location if something should happen. Right. Nice. Nice. So we're, we definitely could do this for another hour and oh, I know yeah. we're, we're, <laughs> we're running out of time. I, I love, I love dispelling myths because there's so many out there in the shooting world. There's so many out, out there about, about calibers and, and we have these sacred totems that people just get on board with and they get so excited. And a lot of it comes down to, well, I was taught this by somebody I respect. So it has to be the gospel. And we don't, we don't stop to go, we have better understanding of it now than we did then. You know, we, we understand this because we've been able to take all this data and collate this and go, Oh, we learned something new, but I wanted to go back to the tourniquets for just a moment because <clears throat> I hear this all the time where, well, if I'm out in the hill country, I'll just use my belt. And I said, can I, can I ask you a stupid question? I did a video on this a long time ago where I took my belt off and I'm like, please notice that my leg is this big around. And all of the little holes in my belt stop a long ways before that. 
Right. And so, and and this guy actually said to me, and, and God bless him, he meant well, because this is where a lot of the I'll use my belt crowd live. He says, um, oh, well, I'll God. just, well he, well, he actually just said, I'll just hold pressure. And I said, oh. okay, but as you get woozy and pass out and the belt loosens, and then somebody else said, well, I'll just hold the pressure for him. And I said, okay, so now you've developed a second threat and you have to let go or your wound. I said, just, just get a tourniquet and <laughs> right. carry it. If you have to improvise after that. And I would never go into the hill country without a tourniquet after learning what I've learned, I would never go into those circumstances. And it, one of the things that I would love to see with church safety is <clears throat> it needs to go into, into in, the industrial side of things too. Everybody. And you said this so perfectly, Aaron, everybody has a first aid kit that is going to do nothing for them. If somebody sticks a drill bit through their hand or they, or they chop their hand off, they crush something. And I've seen people fall and suffer massive bleeding trauma from falling off a ladder. And so we've got to break this whole, I've got this metal box on the wall at my company and it's got band-aids and uh, iodine in it and we're golden. You know, we, we've got to blend that together. So anyway. Yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting that, that you're talking about um, people saying, hey, well, this is who I, I heard it from. I respect them, blah, blah, blah. And this is the way I'm going to go. There was a story that is kind of like a parable that I heard a long time ago that's always stuck with me in my life. And it's one of those things that I always go back to. And it was about this husband whose wife would make this ham. And in this ham, she would take the ham, she would bake it, but Every time she did it, she would cut the ends off the ham. And so she always used to say, or he always used to say it was the greatest ham in the world. And so he, he went to her once that day and said, you know, why is your, your ham the greatest? Is it because you cut the ends off of it off? Of it off? And, and, and what's, what's the deal with that? She goes, well, I don't know why I do that. That's the way my mother did it. So he goes to the mother-in-law and says, hey, what's the deal with this ham? Why do you cut the ends off? And, and the mom looked and said, well, that's the way that I learned from my mother. And so he goes to the, the grandmother-in-law and says, hey, what's the deal with this? And she goes, well, there's no deal. Back then, our pans weren't big enough, so we had to cut <laughs> the ends off to put the, the ham in. And it was one of those things where two generations past that didn't understand the reason why and didn't understand that they didn't need to do it that way. And so well, a lot of times we hear these things and, and, and then – um, yeah. We take them to heart and it's, it goes back to, you know, sometimes, you know, that high and tight thing, find out why and see yeah. if, if there's a reason behind it. And then maybe you'll learn something completely different. Well, and I just say something real quick and then I'll throw it over to Paul and we can wrap up. Cause I, I could go on for another hour, but we're, <laughs> yeah. we're we are out of time. So we'll definitely, we'll have to have you back on sometime Absolutely. if you're, if you're okay with that. But you know, as we've, as a society, and, and I know I've talked with Paul about this before, but as a society, as we've grown and technology's changed and we've evolved, you know, the first, first, first aid class that I, I took, I was in middle school and I took it and it was like 36 hours, right? Yeah. And it was advanced first aid several nights a week, several Saturdays. And you understood, like when you left, you understood why things happen you you knew the background like why do i need to do this not just do it why do i need to do it right and how does the body work with that now that information might be antiquated well i'm sure it is compared to what we know today but the reality is 
we, I see the same thing all the time where it's like our first aid classes now are, you know, an hour, two hours on, you know, on YouTube or on videos or whatever. And it's like, well, wait a second, you know, none of this, because we've gotten into the habit of saying, Hey, you know, I can pick up the phone anywhere in the country and dial 911 and get medical help there within 12 to 15 minutes on, you know, national average or whatever the average is. Um, I think in Columbus, the average is eight minutes and eight minutes is still eight minutes when you're trying, you know, I'm not saying that's, I mean, that's great compared to some of our listeners who, you know, it'd be 30 or 40 minutes, but I'm just saying, you know, as our society has moved on, you know, and we've learned new things, we've kind of dumbed down what we're teaching people. So more and more, you know, like people don't understand, like when, when folks sit in my, a lot of times when folks sit in my class for CPR, they don't understand what the difference between a heart attack and sudden cardiac arrest is. It's the same thing for a lot of people. Right. And so they're like, well, wait a second. Why do I need this electronic battery gizmo thing when I can just do compressions? And it's like, okay, if you don't explain the why behind that, why that makes sense, somebody's not going to understand it and somebody's going to skip over that and just say, look, I don't, you know, I can just do whatever. And so I, I mean, I'm a hundred percent with you. I think there's a, I think there's a ton of stuff out there over the years, you know, like I said, as we've progressed uh, with technology and, and in our society, we've, we've kind of dumbed down and we've, we've kind of hurt our, hurt ourselves with some of these misconceptions that, yeah. You know, now, I mean, we're teaching people to do CPR without rescue breathing. Right. Well, it's beneficial. There's, you know, we've seen statistically where it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't make that much of a difference whether you do it or not in certain situations. So the flip side of that is guess how we first started teaching people to do CPR? Right. Just chest compressions, right? No rescue breaths. So that was back in when? the early 1900s, 1920, 40. I'm just like, you know, and I think about that and I tell people and they're like, Oh, wow. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, everything always comes in a full circle because, you know, as we move forward, we realize that maybe what we've been learning isn't really the way it's supposed to be. And maybe this could be a a little different or, or here's an idea. Maybe at some point there was a doctor that said, you know, if I breathe in this person's mouth, they're going to get some oxygen and it will help them instead of just focusing on good compressions. I don't know. Well, and there's a reason <laughs> why. And it, and, it, and for, for part of it, it's not even just medical, right? It, it's because in this day and age, people don't want to help. It's well, not because yeah. they don't necessarily want to. Maybe they're afraid of litigation. Maybe they're afraid of doing sure. something wrong. You know, in some of the BLS classes... Um, you know, we would talk about the, the rescue breathing and, you know, I would teach signs of someone that was unconscious that may be attempting to regurgitate because not too many people want to know what a baby bird being fed feels like. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, when people get that idea in their mind, all of a sudden they're like, well, why do I want to do rescue breathing? Right. Like there's a high potential that I may. Uh, inflate the stomach too much and then some of that comes back out like yeah that you know so getting people engaged and actually doing the chest compressions but if the person just went down recently the idea or the thought theory behind it is that they have enough oxygen in their blood system as it is 
Right. That if you're doing the compressions, you're keeping everything alive, and hopefully you're in that span of time, you know, that that uh, uh, 10 to 15 minutes that EMS is going to arrive, and you've kept those sure. organs preserved, and you actually did something, right? Because yeah. I know people that carry face masks, and they're like, I'm still, I still don't want to do rescue breathing, right? Like, right. Because it's scary for a lot of people. Um, I know people that are professionals that are like, I hate the bag mask don't give me a bag mask because I absolutely hate it. Right. And, and so getting people engaged is, is a, a big thing. And, and uh, um, I'm kind of glad that they went over to it, but not people. Oh, that's a, another misconception. They're like, well, is it, am I even doing anything? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you are, you're doing something very beneficial and it's better than a lot of people standing around with their cell phones up and, and videotaping and, well, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and watching. And, and we could go into the misconception of getting help. Right. Like, uh, people sit there and say, uh, well, I told someone to call 911. Obviously, there's 20 people standing around. Somebody's had to have called 911. Not necessarily. There's something out there called bystander syndrome where, you know, people automatically perceive other people because they're in a group have, have called the necessary um, sure. or help or, or whatever it is. And, it, you know, 10, 15 minutes passes by. You're still doing chest compressions. You're like, why is nobody here? <laughs> well, no one's called for them yet. They don't know you need help yet. You know, so there's there's a lot going on out there that um, uh, and like you said, uh, corporate training. Now you watch a, an hour, two hour long video. You ask the, the trainer a question and they don't know. And, sure. uh, you know, that's that's now your first aid cert- certification. They have no experience in the field whatsoever. And it, it's kind of a shame that it's gotten to that. Well, and it's a good, that's a good reminder too, to folks out there that are, that are listening and watching, you know, make sure you do your due diligence on the individuals that you bring in for training, because, you know, I, I know in Ohio for certain foster agencies, they will not allow you to do online training. It has to be in person for the sake of being able to answer questions and interact and have that interaction. And I, I always get, I always hear a lot of negative feedback about that. Why can't I just take a CPR class online? And it's like, well, there's reasons for that, you know? And it's like, when you start thinking about it, you know, paying, paying one person $80 to do a hands-on class, you know, is different than paying somebody $20 to watch a video, you know, on, on YouTube or, I mean, can it do in a pinch? Yeah, absolutely. I've told Mm -hmm. people, you know, if you can't remember CPR, you know, download an app like from the Red Cross, that'll, that'll walk you through it. Or, um, you know, one of the other training groups call 911, they'll help you, they'll talk you through it. And, uh, you can kind of go from there, but at the same time, it's like, I don't know, it's, to me, it's just kind of crazy with some of that stuff, but yeah. well, very quickly, cause we, we're, we're very <laughs> yeah. friendly over time, but you guys are making amazing points because if you're in the back country with no cell phone signal, you're in trouble. <laughs> if on two fronts, if you have a peristyle attack, the thing that caused a lot of the people to die was blood loss the trauma from everything that had happened, there weren't enough doctors and there weren't enough nurses that could get into Paris enough per the things that I read to save those people's lives. So had eight or 10 people, maybe not even that many people been like nurse Julie out of Texas and been creating pressure bandages and doing these things, right. we, we would have a lot more people alive. And I would, I, <laughs> I say this to my cop buddies all the time. You will never find yourself in a life or death situation to go, gee, I wish I hadn't trained this much for this. 
ain't, ain't ever going to happen. And if you go into it with the right mindset and with the right training and a little bit of the right equipment, there's a good day, a good chance you can carry the day. And that's the thing that I, that I really am shocked by how many people will go buy another safe queen, but they won't go buy a $30 tourniquet. Good yeah, grief. That safe queen would have bought a lot of training and a lot of cool toys that would save somebody's life. And the thing that I'm going to want, if 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 uh, James is laying on the ground bleeding to death and I'm trying to save his life, is not an extra mag for my second gun that I carry, my backup gun, yeah. which I, I have I have I have a backup mag for. It's going to be a tourniquet at that point, or or something. You know, compression goes. If I was laying on the ground bleeding, you would probably put the tourniquet around my neck instead of where it needs to be. <laughs> you did stop whimpering, and the blood flow did stop. So, well, on that note, we should probably yeah. pray. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, you hear you heard it here, folks. So if I disappear in Missouri somewhere with Paul, you'll know why. <laughs> we were practicing with a tourniquet and it went awry. Yeah. So all right. Well, guys, this has been fun. We'll have to have you back on again. And maybe yeah. Mike will be able to be here for it, which would be very cool. So let, let's pray this one out. Dearly Father, Lord God, I thank you for moments like these. A little levity, but Lord God, a serious topic. And Lord God, it's it's moments like these that we have aha moments and go, wow that can save a life. That was worth the price of admission. That was a gold nugget I can take with me. And Lord God, I thank you for, for Aaron, for what you've trained him for, that you've raised him up for such a time as this. Lord God, I thank you for the opportunity to share this level of training and experience with the world. And Lord God, I ask that you would help it to reach the, the right ears in your son, Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, we'll have a, have a great night. And again, uh, reach out if we can do anything for you. Our website is churchsafetyguys.com. And uh, we also posted Aaron's website. And uh, he does a great job at, at answering questions and, and, uh, and responding. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to him as well. And uh, we will see you next Sunday. So take care. Have a great week. God bless. Thank you for joining the Church Safety and Security broadcast with the Church Safety Guys, sponsored by Checker. We hope that you found it informative, and we appreciate your feedback. Be sure to share our broadcast with your teams. Join the discussion online, and for other great resources, download the Church Security app or visit our website at churchsafetyguys.com. Remember, keep a servant's heart a mindset of ministry, and Semper Disciplina. Always be training. Have a blessed week.